Good afternoon. I am your host, Sean Rumkunis, and welcome to Music Speaks, the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts one person's life. I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. Here is a musical quote for today. I'm not interested in having an orchestra sound like itself. I want it to sound like a composer, Leonard Bernstein. And I think that's a great segue into introducing my guest. My guest today is someone who I have known since my master's. He is brilliant, intelligent, and a natural leader. And I hope you can be his friend, like he is mine, because he is so much fun to work with, and he works very well with others and collaborates very well. Andrew J. Kim recently graduated from Ithaca College after pursuing a master's degree under the mentorship of Professor Octavio Masarokas. During his time at IC, he served as the assistant conductor of the Ithaca College Symphony and Chamber Orchestras and as the co-principal conductor of IC Symphonietta and the Trombone Troupe. In addition, he has worked with Ithaca College Contemporary Ensemble and Cornell University Open Orchestra and enjoyed frequent collaborations with his friends for recital performances and composition premieres. Next fall, he will start working towards his doctoral degree at University of Minnesota, studying with Mark Russell Smith. Before coming to Ithaca, Andrew studied music and English literature at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, where he served as the assistant conductor to the college orchestra, wind ensemble, chorus, and garnet singers. He was one of two conductors of the College Lab Orchestra, performing both on and off campus and collaborating regularly with professional artists and residents. Andrew has performed with distinguished artists such as David Kim, the concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Jasper String Quartet, and Chamber Orchestra First Editions, a professional ensemble based in Philadelphia. He has participated in the Conductor's Workshop at Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music and has performed at Wintergreen and Prisma Festivals. Most recently, Andrew was selected as the winner of the Vincent C. LaGuardia Jr. Conducting Competition and was invited to guest conduct the Arafo Harmonic. His previous teachers include Andrew Howes, Joseph Corgorio, Gary Gress, Richard Rotz, and Matthew Coretti. In master classes and festivals, he has been taught by renowned artists and pedagogues such as Christian Masalaru, Jeffrey Meyer, Gary Lewis, Jerry Blackstone, and Victor Yimposkolowski. He is deeply grateful for all the excellent guidance and mentorship he has received thus far in his life as a musician. And this is how Andrew believes he got started into music. He says, I came to music in an unusual way, starting out thinking that I have absolutely no talent and would only do it as a hobby. I sang casually through middle school and high school and was planning on pursuing other things for his career. But when I sang Mozart's Requiem with a full orchestra for the first time, I realized that music is the most profound thing I could do. From there, I went to a liberal arts college that allowed me to study music without having extensive background on an instrument, and 
found a lifelong mentor who guided me in my pursuit of becoming a conductor. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Good, John, how are you? I'm good. It's so good to see you. I feel like I miss talking to you in the grad lounge and miss sort of, you know, catching up and see what you're up to. And I wanted to congratulate you on your um, acceptance into the University of Minnesota. I know you mentioned that in your bio. I just wanted to say congratulations. I think that's that's in order, and I'm, I'm sure you're excited about the next part of your journey. Good. Thanks so much, Sean. And yeah, likewise, too. I mean, I feel like you're one of the people that I saw every day when we were at school, and we were always we were always there, like going in and out. And um, so it's weird to. I mean, I'm sure for you too. Congratulations on your graduation and you. um, and your future plans as well. And hmm. but it's a bit, for me, it's been a little strange to. Um, it, it feels like we've never graduated just because <laughs> we haven't had the ceremony, and you know we feel like I feel like we went on spring break and just kind of never came back. So it's, yeah. it's been a little bit weird. But um, but thank you, and I, I I just miss seeing everybody as well. Yeah. So how are you staying sane right now during the quarantine? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a changing strategy every day, uh, but mm-hmm. I think my main strategy is to just try to make the most of the time and, you know, keep myself occupied with different things. I've been doing a lot of studying. I, I signed up for some courses um, outside of school, so mm. I have a lot of studying to do, actually, and kind of trying to keep myself busy and doing a lot of cooking. And I feel that um, I, I have the privilege to make uh, make the most of this time, uh, you know, I'm in a good place in Ithaca where the virus isn't so bad, and you know, I have good housemates to keep mm. me sane in that way as well. So I I feel that it's sort of my responsibility to make the most of this time and um, right. be prepared to share this with others when I when things go back to normal. Sort of speaking of staying busy, how do you find yourself being productive? I know that's a skill set of yours, always staying productive and try to like staying on course on certain coursework. Um, how do you find it now? I mean, is it similar to what you've been used to or is it different now that the virus has sort of taken over society? Oh, uh, I think it's but yes and no. I think it's similar and it's different. I mean, it's similar in that, uh, you know, a big part of uh, conductor's life is studying. And mm. so that part I'm able to maintain and that part I'm actually, in a way, devote even more time to because there is time. Um, but on the other hand, obviously, as conductors, we can't make music without other people. So the inability to ha- you know have other people around to make music together, I think that's been very difficult. Um, but staying productive-wise, I'm just trying to employ the same strategies. You know, I've tried to make set goals every day and try to follow a schedule to a degree and, um, you know, mm-hmm. while giving myself some room to relax as well, but right. just trying to take it one day at a time. Right. Speaking of relaxation, how do you sort of now balance doing work and relaxation? Do you sort of feel like it's altered in a way, or do you sort of stick to your own schedule? I do feel that it's altered in a way. I feel that I'm trying to give myself a little bit of more time to relax, which I haven't done in a long time. Um, so <laughs> that's been really great. And uh, one of the things that I've been really putting my energy into is uh, cooking and it's been really nice because mm. I live with two other people here in my house and mm. we've been having these kind of quote family dinners so I I feel a little bit of a not not such a pressure but a little bit of a responsibility to like bring good food to the table when mm. it's my turn to cook and so it's been a kind of an entertaining way of 
you know, still learning something new, but in a more relaxing and not such a kind of a high pressure way. Sure. And I, I know you're a foodie. I know that you like taking pictures of food and sharing <laughs> things and, and, and that sort of nature. And I'm, I'm so happy to, to see that you're doing that right now. Um, something that I admire about you personally is that you have a natural leadership quality. I think that's sort of general something that I've, I've always admired about you. And I think that's why I gravitated towards you with certain projects. And I've always wanted to play with you. Um, tell me a little bit about that. How do you feel like you have sort of bridged the gap to get there? I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I, I think, yeah, that is a really good question. I think that's something that... In certain sense, it's, well, how should I say, like, I don't know if it's something that completely, like, that I've always been doing, let's say, like, I, sure. you know, it's not always that I've had leadership roles and things like that, but I, I think I've always have been kind of a people person, hmm. and I enjoy working with others, um, and so that kind of puts me, I, that, that's, I think thus far it's put me in a position that, I don't know, I mean, because I like doing it, I try to do it, and so I, that's it's put me in a position of doing it, and I think, I don't think, but I don't think of it, it so much as a leadership kind of a thing, like, I don't go out and think, like, oh, I'm going to use my leadership qualities today, or, like, I'm, I'm going to be a leader today, mm. um, but it's more that I think about what I can do to connect with other people around me and try mm. to make their lives better. And I'm happy that that comes across as, you know, having good leadership, but that's, I don't think it's something that I try so consciously. I mean, I try to be a good human being in any community that I'm in, mm. uh, without, I think kind of consciously without trying to be such a, I don't know, like an outspoken leader, let's say, um, mm -hmm. I think I've, previously like seen examples of leadership that was focused on kind of ex you know external qualities of leadership like you know titles and kind of you know power and i i try to think not so much about that but just trying to help others and um mm. hope that that comes across as being a good leader when whenever i am a leader right can you tell me a little bit about your growing up in Korea in a way? Did you feel like you were in a musical-like um, environment when you were growing up or, or more of a musical household? Well, I'm certainly unusual in that uh, I didn't grow up in a musical household. Uh, none of my parents were musicians. None of my family member is a musician, except for my grandmother, who uh, was actually a singer. Hmm. But... He, she taught guitar later in her life, and by the time I was born, she did some teaching when I was a really a little kid, but, you know, as far as I could remember, it, you know, music wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I was never like, oh, you know, this person in my family is a musician, so I'm going to grow up to be a musician, you know. Mm. And, but I think, in other sense, I was always around music, because my grandmother obviously loved music, and she mm. always played music at mm. home. Uh, not necessarily classical music. She actually loved pop music, and so we listened to a lot of pop music when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, and same thing with my parents. Like my dad's a good singer, um, so he—I mean—he's not a professional musician, but he—he, he, you know, 
he draws a big crowd when he sings. Um, mm. And my mom loves music also. And so I've been around music in that sense, but not in a sense of my parents were professional musicians or anything like that. Sure, and sure. I think actually growing up in Korea, I had a hard time in music because I remember be being required to play different instruments as I was growing up in general music class. And one of the first kind of very negative memories with music was uh, needing to play the recorder in front of my classmates. And, but I, just, I was just so bad at it. And I think my teacher was a little bad at it too, so I blame him for that a little bit. Um, but I just was like crying in front of my class because I was like squeaking and I couldn't play and I just thought I had no talent at all. So it's kind of, it was kind of a mixed bag of musical experiences growing up. Right. So now that you're all grown up and now that you've gotten your master's in conducting, um, what tip would you give your younger self? Very good question. Wow. I think that, well, one of my biggest regrets is that I never took piano very seriously until recently. Sure. Um, so, uh, so I would, I would like to change that, but I think in a more kind of more interesting way, I think I would just tell myself that it's possible to do music without being a childhood prodigy. Mm. Um, it, as you know, probably there are a lot of South Korean musicians who come out into the world stage and they're virtuosos of their child prodigies. And I think the culture is unfortunately too often that, you know, you are either a child prodigy who will devote everything you have to music or music is just a hobby and is not a viable career option. And part of it is just how the, the stru musical structure is, but also like I just distinctly remember growing up, like because I wasn't, I didn't start playing the piano at the age of two. Hmm. I didn't think I could pursue music as a professional career. Hmm. Um, so I would, it would be great to know that it's it would it's still possible. It's something that I can do if I want to, and it's something that I can work to be better at, um, even if I don't have innate talent. Hmm. So going back to classical music, you were saying that you were interested to pop, but um, let me ask you this. Did you enjoy classical music right away, or is it something you developed interest over time for? I think it's definitely something that I developed interest over time for. I didn't, I don't remember, I, aside from learning about composers from textbook, which I actually don't even remember because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really focused during these classes, <laughs> and um, it, it seemed to have no relevance in my life at the mm. time. Um, so I listened to pop music and other types of music for the longest time, mm. and it was really in, I would say starting in maybe middle school, but really more in high school that I got interested in a kind of a through a more intellectual outlet, I would say, I was I started becoming interested in literature and history around that time, and I wanted to know more about just culture at large, and so that's how I began my exploration of classical music. I wanted to know what, you know, Mozart was about. I wanted mm. to know what Beethoven was about, and so I started listening to their music and just discovered that I really liked it. I mean, alongside my, my, you know, everything I did with singing at the time, which was as a hobby um so I, I had a kind of connection to music in that way um but never a i don't know what a passionate um connection to classical music until i got to you know high school and approached it from that perspective right i want to bring up your bio because you mentioned to me that the reason why you got into music was you said you got into it in an unusual way 
and you said that you started out feeling you had no talent, but you wanted to do it as a hobby. So in that light, um, did you, why did you initially feel like it was just a hobby? Was it sort of something that had you been thinking about for a while? You're thinking that, oh, music is just something I want to do on the side. But then when did it sort of start becoming a focal point in your life? Yeah, I think going back to the growing up part of my life, it, I mean, in my mind, it was just never a possibility that I could do it for anything beyond the hobby because, mm. and you know, I sometimes, I sometimes I still feel this way because there's so many talented people out there and it's just the kind of things that people, other people are doing is just so incredible. Um, but to me, it felt like you know, if I didn't make a name for myself very early, very early on and be, you know, and be very proficient in an instrument or at the voice, uh, I, that was not something that I could do. Mm. So that's why I thought of it as a hobby. And, and for a while, I think I had a kind of goal to make a lot of money, um, mm. to be very frank. And mm. that, I mean, that got in the way of kind of, I mean, that narrowed my perspective to what I could pursue in the future, right? Because like, okay, like I want to, and I mean, I, it was very interesting. My perspective was I, cause I always liked the arts a lot. And so I, I wanted to make a lot of money and then retire and be involved in the arts somehow, you know, that mm. it was, that was always kind of my trajectory in my mind somehow. Mm. And, um, but it, in high school, I sang Mozart's Requiem with the community chorus mm. near my area. And it was quite a good community chorus actually and we had my director always hired a full professional orchestra he hired freelance professional players together and to, to, to form an orchestra and it was that experience that really cemented the fact that you know if i don't give this a shot then mm. i would really regret it and then i had to kind of figure out logistics of you know what can i do how can i do it but that was the really defining moment of mm. you know this is this can be a hobby but if it could be more it would be much better sure something that i got to do recently was a flipped interview where someone got to interview me and they got to ask me about my personal experience with different section of the, of the orchestra so what i'm going to be challenging you in this small segment which i call figuring out different sections of the orchestra with my friend andrew we're going to talk about what different i mean let's 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 break down each section and let's talk about their strengths and their weaknesses and what you think like are the best parts of like their sound. So let's start with percussion. What do you like about percussion in orchestra? They're so crucial. Um, sure. And they're, they're the rhythmic drive of the ensemble, right? And so I, and I always, I, I always jokingly say to my percussionist friends that the conductor just follows the percussionist. Um, <laughs> but, Mm. There's a there's a certain sense of, I mean, the, it, I always find it very interesting. There are always people who I, in, when I step on the podium, I always try to make media connections with. And obviously, a, an obvious one that other people might guess is the concertmaster, obviously, because mm -hmm. the concertmaster is often the person representing and leading the ensemble from a musician's standpoint. But another person that I really try to get an immediate connection with is the timpanist, because and timpani I, I don't always think of is equivalent to percussion because they have various different roles um but but in the in this kind of in the sense of this discussion they mm. really are the rhythmic core of the ensemble mm. 
and I and I find that once we establish that connection, then working with the orchestra becomes very easy. And so I I love what they bring in that sense. Sure. Let's go to the strings. Strings are interesting because I for for me it's interesting because they're the instrument group that I have the least connection with I mm. would say because okay. I have played a woodwind instrument before um, I have played a percussion instrument before and I I sing so there's a certain affinity to breathing that I, that comes with winds and brass players yeah but at the same time strings they're the least familiar to me but they also make up the biggest portion of the orchestra in yeah. terms of sheer numbers right so. Mm-hmm. Um, there are always people that I, that I, I mean, the, you, you can't escape working with string, working close to the string players. And so I'm always trying to get to know them better and better. Mm. Um, but over the, over the past few years working with different ensembles a lot, uh, I really got a sense of how they play together. And that's been a very satisfying milestone for me to understand how to show things to string players and how the mechanism of sound works and i try to pick up the violin for a little bit and so that helps me a lot as well but mm. they're the kind of closest people to me but the ones that i'm always trying to get to know more about what about women's so not everybody knows this but i played the clarinet for a little bit in middle school mm. <laughs> so i have a little bit of connection with the woodwind section um mm. they're all very in an in a orchestral setting, they're all very virtuosic players because there's only a select number of them and they all really function as soloists. And I really enjoy working with them on an individual level because they bring certain artistry to their lines. And particularly when they have solos, mm. uh, the way they play something can really influence the way I think about the music and the way I approach the rest of the piece, how to shape things. And obviously, mm. I bring my ideas, but I love sharing my ideas with them and working with them closely that way and let's finish on my favorite section of the orchestra let's do it with some brass right um so you know that uh in the past year uh year and a half uh, year and well three quarters of a year i worked with the trombone troupe, and that's been a really um revealing experience for me because I think it's easy to think about the brass section as just kind of the loud, powerful people. Mm. But I've got, and and that's true, and that's that's it really you you guys bring such a such an excitement to a piece of music. But I've explored the other side of brass playing in the past year, in the kind of more lyrical and gentle, and how the kind of wonderful blended brass tone um, that can that an ensemble of brass players can create. Um, and so I've. I would say that they're the people that I've had the pleasure of really getting to know recently, and my perspective uh, about brass playing has really extended. All right. Well, thank you for indulging me on that. Let's uh, go into a little bit more of... You've also conducted a variety of ensembles that I see. What did you find most valuable? I think every experience teaches me something new and so there's with conducting I think there's always a the foundational principles of really knowing the music being prepared and uh, trying to bring different ideas together and facilitate listening across ensembles Mm. Um, but I think working with different ensembles present different challenges to how we apply those principles and so 
every ensemble that I've worked with has presented different challenges to me and forced me to come up with different solutions mm. in the, through the course of which I learned so much. And so, you know, obviously I worked with the symphony a lot, um, but I also worked with the symphoniera, and that was mm. a big part of my life here. And mm. two ensembles that are similar in the sense that they're orchestras, but very different in the sense of the skill level and mm. the kind of ability to do things on their own, right? And so I learned so much about teaching music, um, not in such a way of teaching how to play their instruments, but how to listen and trying to explain to them the structure of the music, uh, you know, and try to get them to listen beyond their own um, their own part, their own single line. Sure. Uh, and then I got to work with the contemporary ensemble, which was very rewarding to me. Contemporary, ensemble, contemporary music is something that I had a very late start to um, because I was so fascinated with sort of the so-called canon because I started late, right? So I needed my years of just taking in all the classics and getting to know them. And so contemporary music has been a more of a recent interest of mine. Um, mm. And the, this ensemble really fueled that interest a lot because I got to work with a chamber ensemble and with musicians on a very intimate level. And they happened to be musicians that I really liked working with as well. And that was really fantastic. And I got to explore and tackle this immense challenge of this piece together um, and have a shared experience with them, not just as a conductor telling them how to play, but you know, a part of a, a six-member ensemble that tried to figure out how to make this work. Right. Um, and so working with different sizes of ensemble like that has helped me a lot. Mm. And of course, lastly, not to leave out like projects that we did together, mm. um, like the Stravinsky, for example. Um, you know, putting a project together like that is always very interesting because it presents a variety of logistical challenges. And obviously, with your project, we had theater, mm. um, and so that brought in a whole new set of things for me to think about mm. besides just the kind of rehearsing and the things that I do on the podium, right. and so. All of these experiences, I think, just continue to enrich my education and my knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I do really find that one experience helps the other when I come back to different genres of conducting. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just grateful for all the things that I got to do in that way. Well said. Um, I want to ask you this because I know there are some people out there right now wondering the future of the IC orchestra department because um, your um, teacher and Professor uh, Professor Octavio Masarocas just left to take on a position in MSU. What do you see for the future of Ithaca College symphonies? I think it's incredibly strong. I because I think Octavio has brought some wonderful things, and I mean, in terms of leadership, um, I I mean, Ithaca College is a wonderful place, and I know it will draw a lot of great candidates, and I know mm -hmm. that. Um, I'm sure that there are great recommendations that are being made um, to the mm. school about who to who to um, inquire about. But I I really do think that, especially in an inter interim setting, right, this person is someone who will have for a year. Mm. In that case, um, it's really about what the members bring, I think. And mm. something that about the Ithaca College orchestral ensembles that really stand out to me is the enthusiasm and the passion for making music hmm. um, that they bring to every rehearsal, every concert. And actually, that's something that really stood out to me when I auditioned here two years ago. Um, hmm. 
some there were some places where the players who were playing for the audition didn't really seem interested in the process. But everybody who played for my audition, they seemed so excited to be there and they were enthusiastic. And so I think as long as the students keep that, and I'm sh I have 100% confidence that they will because they love making music, then the quality of the ensemble and the power of the ensemble will be very strong. And I mean, you just hope that the conductor, whoever comes, uh, they can take that energy and channel it uh, mm. to give the best rehearsal to make the best rehearsals and performances possible but uh, really the, the kind of core of the orchestra re uh, resides with its members right sure. and I know that there are great people who will be there next year and it's gonna it's going to be another fantastic year hmm. well Andrew we're gonna take a brief intermission but don't go anywhere we'll be right back my friend Andrew and Andrew the first song on your playlist is the uh, Mozart Requiem uh, you specifically narrowed in on the Kyrie um, and you did mention that you have performed this before uh, was, was there someone before that performance that introduced you to Mozart I think I knew about Mozart just because like I you know it's hard to not hear the name Mozart at some point in your life, right. you know, and so, yeah, and, but I, I have to be honest, I didn't know much about his output at all, and I didn't know much about his music. Um, I may have played a piano sonata by him at, by this point. Sure. I may, I think I need, I've heard the, the 40, the symphony number 40, but I really, that was about it. And so it wasn't like I had a complete immersion in Mozart um, before I sang this work. Right. Um, but this was, yeah, so this was one of my first forays into directly working with Mozart's music. Right. What makes this piece a masterwork? Wow, what what makes any piece a masterwork? That's a hard question. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's a good question to ask. I think, I think great works have a, a power to stay connected with you over a long period of time. And... Mm. I don't know how I knew this initially when I first sang this, um, but I knew that because it was so powerful and it spoke to me in a in a way that other pieces of music hadn't necessarily, I knew that I would always come back to this and I would enjoy it. I would it would it would speak to me and I would relate to it in a different way as I changed as a person. Right. Um, and I think that's what makes this a masterwork. Okay, so without any further ado, here is the Kyrie from the Mozart Requiem. So I think there's something to be said about that open fifth at the end. I think it's sort of a statement. What do you, what do you mm. think? 
for sure. I mean, for me, the power of these pieces um, are the questions that they ask mm. and that, that, that they, but they, they, they don't answer, right? So you pose a great question about, okay, what's this, you know, what does this mean? And I think it's about, I mean, I think that answer always ch- is always changing, right? And so you're yeah. depending on what kind of experience you bring. And so, um, yeah, so I think I would say the answer is always changing. And that's why, that's why this is, that's why that's such a great question and something mm. that everybody can think about. Mm. Let's go a little bit back to when you performed this piece. I've talked to people about performing music before and the thing that they say that they agree with most is that when they once they play something they really really love, they feel so passionate after they play it. They feel like they draw something. And I think that's what you said like after you did this you were like, "You know what? Let me think about music again as not a hobby but as something I want to do, you know?" What was it like right. to perform this work like that? Yeah, I had a very vivid physical sensation when I was singing this. Um, mm-hmm. So it's hard to replicate this through speakers, and this is part of partly why I really believe in the power of live music. But I sang this in um, my school cathedral. We had a kind of a small cathedral, if you will. I mean, I, I don't know if you can call it a cathedral. It's a chapel, but a pretty big gothic chapel very resonant space you know stone architecture and all this right yeah and so you can imagine we had about 100 singers um and and an orchestra and the sound that we were making was just incredible and we when we got to the end of the end of this view the part that we just heard you know all the voices come together uh for the one last iteration of Kyrie Eleison and I had the sensation that you know when you when you make a sound, the sound usually travels from your body, your core, to the outside. I mean, I'm sure you relate to this, Sean, when you're playing the instrument, the air comes from you and then it goes out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I had a sensation that because the sound was so powerful, the sound was going out, but also the vibrations of the sound waves were coming inside as well. Mm. So it was a it was a very kind of a in all-enveloping experience, this giant bubble of sound that we were making um right. and it wasn't i mean it really physically felt like i was connected to everybody else that was making the sound and that, that I, I think that's that was such a powerful powerful experience for me mm. and that was the moment i mean i just so vividly remember it to this day um that was the moment i thought wow like i've never experienced anything so extraordinary in my life right so the next piece on your playlist is Beethoven 5, another amazing masterwork like we mentioned before. Um, but you specifically narrowed down to a moment that is the end of the third movement that transitions into the fourth movement. I think we've had this, this maybe this discussion before about this work and how Beethoven is sort of dueling with fate in this sort of way. And we think about it a lot and we think that fate maybe sort of is his blindness in that in that sense you know or maybe maybe not his blindness but his deafness i think that that's what i meant to say um yeah. have you sort of conducted this piece before i well, actually it's interesting i was supposed to do this um last my, right. my first year uh, mm. which was an, was an amazing opportunity but because because of a kind of a weather event it got canceled and things had to move around so I, I didn't get to and I 
I've only I've always wanted to do this, but I only got to do um, the first movement in a kind of a workshop masterclass setting, um, but mm. never in a concert. But right. I really look forward to doing it. Is it is it on the bucket list to definitely do? Definitely, and yeah. this, I mean the my connection with this piece is very interesting. I remember several times in uh, my undergrad studies when I was first trying to pursue conducting, hmm. and it was it just felt very uncertain. You know, like I um, like I said earlier, I I really don't think I am kind of innately musically talented at all, and I didn't hmm. have an extensive training when I was young. And I knew that I really wanted to do music, but it wasn't like I knew I could do music. I could very much fail and, you know, have nothing left to show after my undergrad piece. And I remember just there were con- there were a few moments where I felt burnt out, and it was a it was a, those are rare moments. But when they came, they were they were fairly strong. And I I don't know why, but I always gravitated to this piece. Uh, and I wanted to listen to this piece when those moments came. And right. in a way, it sounds cliche, but I think in, it's not so cliche in a sense that, like, it really did manage to lift me out of those moments. Sure. Um, and really managed to move me. And, you know, I just I would just sit and listen to this piece for half an hour. Mm. And I came out of it feeling very differently before, uh, than how I felt before. And so, you know, kind of this, uh, Beethoven overcoming struggle is a, in a way, it's a cliched sentiment about this piece. But I think it's in in a in its ability to actually do that. I think it's very powerful. Right. Um, and so, yeah. so yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's on my bucket list. Okay. Well, without any further ado, here is the segment that leads from the scherzo into the next section of Allegro in this piece. Sorry for one whole second. So Andrew, let's dissect this sort of transition. I'm so sorry for the middle part, but I hate no, having no those those random ads in YouTube. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, what's happening between the transition between the third and the fourth. Well, so the the symphony famously begins with this uh, the sense of struggle in the first movement, right? And this transition is the moment where all that struggle has, and there's more sense of drama in the third movement as well, and all of that kind of gets transformed into this triumph with those beginning chords in um, the fourth movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's such a sense of uncertainty about the scherzo, I think, particularly, you know, the, the areas immediately before the beginning of the fourth movement that 
I don't know. I um, it's in a way you could say that it's a predictable move. Um, in a sense, I mean, you know, looking back on it, obviously, like looking back on the history of symphonic writing, hmm. but. To me, I don't know. It always, it always gets me. Um, it always moves me. Sure. And um, okay. So I think, yeah, I think that that transformation is very, is really wonderful. I want to mention that um, this is his two hundred fiftieth birth year, and I, I hate to say it, but I don't think there's anyone else that we can sort of give a birth year to um, than Beethoven. I think that's kind of funny in a way, but also sort of owes to the um the magnitude to his greatness as a composer um what do you like about his writing beethoven Beethoven. i think for me um he encompasses so many things in his in his of, of works like he has he's funny at times he's very dark and emotional and dramatic at times He's very um, graceful at times in his earlier works, in particular, um, but mm. also, you know, very joyous in his later symphonies as well, like Symphony Number no. Eight, who opens with this great sense of brightness and joy. And so, you know, whatever I want uh, from music at the, you know, whatever kind of music that I want to listen to in a given moment, I can find some. I can usually find something in Beethoven. Right. Um, in a way that I can't quite say about other composers, I think. Um, you know, the classicism of early works to this profundity of his, you know, later works, especially his later string quartets and piano piano works. Um, I think that range is just so unbelievable. Hmm. So the next piece that you gave us is a piece by Chopin, written uh, and uh a beautiful, stunning piece of music called Prelude in E Minor, Opus Twenty Eight, Number Four. Um, who introduced the, this to you, to you? You know, actually, I don't know. I think my piano teacher assigned this to me. Okay. Or maybe, actually, I don't even know. I'm not quite certain about that. Sure. This piece, uh, my connection to this piece is interesting. I, you know, I mentioned that I wanted to uh, take, I wish I had taken piano more seriously when I was younger, and this is so true. My relationship with the piano um, has been very complicated Mm. in that I really didn't like it for Mm. most of my life until I, you know, until I really started to pursue music seriously. Um, I just didn't connect to it somehow. I didn't connect to what playing an instrument meant. Right. It, it always felt like a chore. I never practiced. Um, I would go to my lesson, and that was my hour of practice for the week. Was the lesson, you know? Mm. I was a horrible piano student. And but when I was after I had this encounter with music, I remember um, sitting down at the piano. I really don't know how I found this piece, and I just started to play it. And it was not so hard that I couldn't play it. Yeah, it took me a little while to learn it, but I I could learn it. And somehow I realized that there were things that I could do with the music that wasn't just about playing the notes. It was about taking the time and or going forward, you know, playing the phrase in a certain way. Um, and that I found something that was beyond just getting the right notes, right. Um, right. which had been like, really, I, I thought piano playing was just about playing the right notes at the right time Sure. Um, until at this moment. And so this piece provided a very 
a moment of transition. I mean, these pieces that I'm sharing with you are all kind of pieces of pieces about transition, you know, moments of transitions in my life. Right. And this was a, tr- uh, a kind of a transformational piece uh, in my relationship with the piano. Right. Okay, so without any further ado, here is the prelude in E minor by Chopin. I think there's some beauty in sadness, I think, in that way. Um, What do you think Chopin was trying to accomplish with writing this piece? I think, well, that's always a a question to ask um, and never get the answer to one of those questions. For me, there's a sense of um i mean i think death is very much present in this work Mm. um at least that's and it's it's very interesting because i immediately got that sense when i started playing it Mm. and and not every piece becomes clear to me in that way um but this one really did and there's always a sense of trying to search i think i mean he lingers on one note um and kind of goes somewhere, but then comes back, goes somewhere, comes back for a long time. And in the course of getting to the final arrival, mm. there's just a kind of slow deliberation um, and meditation. And I think it's that sense that he tried to convey. Right. Yeah. So now moving into a more happier note, we're going to check out uh, another and so this was actually the one I was most excited to listen to because the one I haven't heard before. 
and I'm so glad that you brought this up today. Uh, the piece is called Grandmother's Heart is as Wide as the Ocean, written by a fellow named Lucid Fall. I don't know that I know, I know that's not his real name, but I know that's the name of his like his stage name. Right. Uh, so I love acoustic music. What do you enjoy about this? This is the type of music that I most enjoyed when I was a kid. I mean, I would listen to, you know, this genre, you know, kind of this mellow, balladic, you know, singer-songwriter type of songs. These are the things that I listened to a lot when I was young and, you know, with my mom or my grandmother. And it's the kind of music that I really still like to listen to a lot now. Um, right. And particularly of Korean music, especially. And so... I think it just kind of speaks to me in a very intuitive way uh, because it's something that I grew up with. Hmm. So this song is sung in Korean. Um, I wanted to ask you, what should a non-Korean speaker take away from the song? It, yeah, it's, it, I, I thought a lot about putting this on because I, I know that most listeners wouldn't get the text immediately. But if I... If I may introduce it just a little bit, I mean, I don't sure. know if you have to know every word, but um, the, the text is talking about this, the singer's grandmother, um, who obviously has passed away, right. um, but would, you know, he would go to hang out with her um, when he was young, and he talks about small things that she did, you know, she was a, it was a, the setting is in a rural, um, you know, kind of a beach town, and, uh, you know, she picks oysters and clamshells for them and goes to the, you know, walks hours to the market to buy, uh, you know, a cheap watermelon for them, you know, so they could, you know, cool off in the summer. And mm. it's these small things that really show, um, you know, grandmother's love for uh, her grandson. And I, I, I was very close with my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Right. And she was the one um, who really took care of me for the longest time, um, mm. even until recently. Right. And because my parents were always busy working, and so um, she has a special place in my heart. And when I heard the song, it was it was after she passed away. She passed away a couple of years ago, mm. and um, just I don't know. I I just resonate everything about the sentiment of grandmotherly love resonated sure. uh, with me um, in the song, and so it's really beautiful. And I think it, I think that kind of um, sweet and um, warm love comes through, even though one might not um, understand the words immediately. Sure. So without any further ado, here is Lucid Falls, Grandmother's Heart is as Wide as the Ocean. Oh, 
That was so beautiful, Andrew. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what sort of feelings do you get from when you listen to that song? I, I think about my grandmother and how right. how amazing her unconditional love was. Um, and there's a line in the song that talks about um, how she, this grandmother uh, of the, the singer sure. um, kind of put him on her back and ran to the, the doctor when he was sick. And mm. I remember like it's a kind of panic and the, the, the utter concern that my grandmother had whenever I was sick. And I just, you know, I can just imagine those, uh, those memories. And, and it talks about how the spirit of grandmother, you know, the song, the writer's grandmother lives in, um, lives in the singer and the singer's sister and, you know, the singer's parents. And I, I think that's very much true. I, you know, music is something that I, you know, she was a musician herself and she loved music. And and in that way, by making music, I think that the, my grandmother's spirit lives in me. And um, I think that's, that, that those kinds of moments in the song really resonates with me. Sure. So the last piece on your playlist is Brahms, uh, Symphony Number no. 2. This is an awesome piece of music, I, I think. He writes brilliant symphonies. And um, when was the first time you heard Brahms in concert? That's a great question. Sometime in college. Hmm. Um, okay. I think it was Brahms three. It was the first time I heard the Brahms symphony live, and might have been like around that time is when I first heard the like all four Brahms symphonies. I mean, I hadn't heard a single symphony by Brahms. And, like until I got to college, which is, right. I think, you know, other other people, other you know, at least music students might find fascinating. Um, these are pieces that people come into contact with much younger. But um, yeah, that was the first time I heard Brahms three, and then Brahms two, and other Brahms symphonies shortly thereafter. Right. So without any further ado, here is Andrew's last piece, Brahms Symphony Number no. Two. So I know that 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 few seconds doesn't give this piece its true justice, um, but I need to ask you this: What makes this a great piece? For me, it well. Let me talk a little bit more about how I encountered this piece. Sure. And um, because I think it talks a little bit about my connection to it. I discovered this piece. Because, you know, something that um, conducting students do and conductors do is play um, scores on, orchestral scores on the piano. Right. Learn to read the full scores on the piano. And so one of the things that I did a lot in undergrad was practice the skills. And 
this was I, I got to know this piece better through that assignment. I, I my teacher assigned me to be able to play the beginning of this um, on the piano, and it was amazing. Like this, immediately the chords, uh, you know, played by by the brass, um, really resonated, mm. and that and that kind of immediate. You know, the uh, piece's appeal, a uh, piece's um, ability to immediately appeal to a listener, and of course, it's different for everyone. I mean, I don't think everybody. I mean, you know, often Brahms too is people's like least favorite Brahms or whatever. You know, I mean, people have different takes on what their favorite Brahms symphonies are, and so right. what you know, who resonates with what piece is always changing and is always very different. But to me this piece was one that really spoke to me from the very opening. Um, and, you know, not even through a, an orchestra playing it, but playing it on the piano, you know, um, that was really incredible. And to me, I think the piece has so much of what I value in music, which is lyricism. And as a singer, I mean, the the, li- the song nature and the, the lines, the long singing lines. Mm. And I think this piece really has many beautiful moments like that um, mm. of lyricism and uh, and sense of joy in the finale just the incredible culmination of this, this journey that we've been on mm. um, and so I that to me that's why this piece that this piece speaks to me and this is on your bucket list too of course mm. yeah so Andrew thank you for your playlist I really appreciate you reaching out to me and letting me know your symphonic landscape and I, I always love listening to music with you I think it's something I, I want to do with you all the time um, and uh, so as a surprise um, our next section uh, when we take a break but I am going to test Andrew on his Beethoven knowledge to see how he's going to do I'm really excited for this section um, and uh, don't go anywhere because you want to hear more Andrew Kim when we come back from our break so don't go away back with my friend Andrew Kim and Andrew how do you feel you feel prepared to take on this challenge I never feel prepared for anything but I will try my best (laughs) okay without further ado here is number one That is absolutely correct. You got that one. Yeah, uh, very familiar excerpt for conductors because this opening um, often comes up in conducting seminars or you know auditions, things sure. like that. Sure. Okay, here's number two. Any thoughts on that one? I, I mean, this whole symphony uh, is, a, is a, such a brilliant work and just one full of joy. Um, well, of course, except for the second movement, but um, but other movements, it's full of joy. And I conducted the first movement of this uh, at my 
actually auditioned. So ah. um, in that way, it's, uh, it's very close to my heart as well. <laughs> you said the Symphony 7? Mm-hmm. First movement of Symphony 7. <gasps> oh my goodness. It was actually the third movement. Oh no. Oh no, I knew that this was the third movement. I just conducted the first movement of the... Oh, oh right, so sorry, so sorry. Right. You almost got me there. <laughs> okay, so two in the book so far. Let's see if you can get the third one. Here we go. That is absolutely correct. Very recognizable. Um, Sean, you'll appreciate this because you appreciate things like this. You know, there's a, I don't know if you actually listen to this together. There's a video uh, on YouTube that compiles like hours of just those two opening chords and how differently that they're they're played. Like different tempi, different articulation, length, you know, all this stuff. And um, some Baroque, uh, you know, period orchestras, of course, like the pitch is different. Anyway, very fascinating for music nerds like you and me. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. All right, here's number four. That is abs- That is absolutely correct. And finally, we have reached our last excerpt. Uh, Are you ready for this one, Andrew? Yeah. Okay, here we go. That is absolutely correct. Another brilliant piece. Absolutely brilliant. So you have come out on top. Um, The next time I see you, I owe you a beer. Um, so, that is the prize for, for winning my competition today. Thank you for doing it, my friend. I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Um, is there anything you want to share with us quickly before we go? You know, I, I, listened, I got to listen to a couple of other um, episodes that you've done, and um, I've, it's interesting. So something that's so fascinating about music is the music itself, but also how people come to music. And I think. Um, it's so great to be able to hear what angles people come at, uh, you know, come to music from. And um, so thanks for thanks for collecting all our stories. It's really great. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I'll see you around, Andrew. Thank you. Great. Yeah, I hope we'll have a chance to catch up properly in person. See you. Great. Thanks, Sean. Bye. Thank you, Andrew. And you've been listening to Music Speaks podcast for lovers of music everywhere. Also this week, I will have on the show Molly Moran, who will discuss her education in Binghamton and upbringing in the Trumbull High School Golden Eagle Marching Band. And that's it for me. I'm Sean Ramkunis, and keep listening to what you love.